Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. China and the United States celebrate the 45th anniversary of formal diplomatic relations earlier this year. Peace, cooperation and win-win policy, these are arguably the cornerstone of the relationship between China and the U.S. So much so that Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi says peaceful engagement is not just an option, but an imperative for the world's most consequential bilateral relations. But with quite complicated ties, how do both sides manage the year 2024? To answer that question, I talked to two people in the know. In Beijing, Ben Harburg, Director of uh, National Committee of U.S.-China Relations and also Managing Partner of MSA. In San Francisco, Dawei, Professor and Senior Fellow of the Center for International Strategy and Security with Tsinghua University. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. I'm so glad that we have a switch of locations between the two of you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that shows the communication of the two countries we have recovered. I'm so glad to hear that. And hopefully we have more American guests in Beijing. Isn't it, Ben? It's, it's beautiful here. It's crisp, uh, clear, um, you know, blue skies in the middle of winter. Yeah, well, over the weekend, the 45th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and the United States is being celebrated, especially from the Chinese side. We heard from the uh, director and foreign minister Wang Yi uh, talking about these relations, but this celebration is being done at a time when the United States is entering into its presidential election year. So Ben, what do you make of this interesting combination? We might have seen peak U.S.-China relations. Obviously, we had a pretty positive bilateral summit in, at the APEC in, in, in the fall, um, and you know some exuberance today. But I, I suspect that there's reason to be pessimistic over the coming months as we enter a U.S. election cycle, where each one of the political parties will try to outdo the other and try to prove it was harder on China than the other. So we might have might have reached the apex this weekend. Mm. So, Professor Dai, it seems that uh, Mr. Harburg is trying to warn us about uh, the turbulence ahead. I actually agree with Ben that probably uh, we will see some turbulence this year because of the campaign. Uh, having said that, uh, I don't think we have to be too pessimistic. I mean, uh, campaign year, of course, is always difficult for China-U.S. relations, particularly for the candidates who want to show they are, you know, they are hawkish, they are hardline to China. But at, on the one hand, I think it's almost, uh, uh, I think most of that was uh, will be the rhetorics rather than policy. Uh, I think it's very important for China side. How does Chinese side respond to that rhetoric? If you respond that, uh, you know, word by word, I think that will we will see more turbulence. But mm -hmm. if you just tend to ignore it, um, probably it won't be so serious. And at the same time, I think uh, the campaign year probably means uh, the current administration won't be able to stage out any major policy towards China. Takes two to tango, isn't it? It is important to implement the San Francisco consensus as two sides have been talking about, which is the kinds of uh, 
uh, areas of cooperation and the establishment of communications between the two sides agreed upon by the two presidents last year in San Francisco. Ben, so far, what do you think about the nature of these implementations and the results at this moment? We've seen an opening of that mill-to-mill -mill dialogue, which had, had uh, been closed following uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Um, maybe some other opening of channels uh, critical to establish those uh, guardrails and red lines for the relationship, uh, critical to establish points where we feel um, you know, there, there, there be open communication channels, particularly as we uh, face challenging conditions in the South China Sea and other areas where um, incidents do happen, accidents do happen. And, um, and so it, it appears that some of those channels have reopened and, and that, that bodes positively for some of those kind of extreme red zone areas. Uh, I think besides what Ben have said, which I totally uh, echo, I think we also we have seen some developments on uh, the people to people exchanges uh, area. Uh, the two countries are increasing their the, 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 their flights across the two countries. Uh, I think the uh, airfare, uh, you know, traveling to to the U.S. And, and vice versa will probably will lower be lower. I think, uh, and also uh, I think I, I, yeah, at least on China side, I think uh, Chinese government and its related agencies, including universities I work for, are working for. The, uh, the plan uh, raised by President Xi in San Francisco to invite 50,000 American students to visit China. Uh, I think uh, the Chinese government are working hard on that. They are, they are starting to do that. So we will see that happen in the coming months and years. Mm. Over the weekend at the celebration ceremony in which the Chinese foreign minister spoke about the relationship, uh, there was the students coming from the University of Virginia, also students coming from uh, yeah. Columbia University there, uh, exactly. a lot of shining and smiling faces over there. And over the weekend, uh, Professor Dias, you are from Tsinghua University, I understand there was a, a ping pong game, uh, you know, following exactly. the tradition of the relations yeah. uh, being held. The, uh, actually, actually, I met the Columbia University students delegation before I fly to before I flew to San Francisco, uh, but because of this flight, I missed the UVA delegation <laughs> of the ping pong game. Mm -hmm. But I'm happy to see some of them uh, in Tsinghua. They're actually the day before I leave. And that's the Columbia University students, and I'm also happy to see the UVA delegation on the news uh, and uh, also in the in the reception uh, that you mentioned. Uh -huh. And I heard they have very good doubles, you know, with the Chinese and American students teamed up uh, against uh, their, oh. uh, their others, uh, other pairs. It was quite interesting. Uh, ben, of course, uh, all these stories are familiar to your ears, but, you know, to what extent can we understand this people-to-people -people, uh, interaction, especially the 50,000 American students likely to be in China traveling uh, in the year 2024? Yeah, it's obviously something we've championed and as a director in the National Committee that really, you know, opened the ping pong diplomacy up between China and the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, we reiterated the call for this at our gala dinner, which was one of the last public appearances that uh, Dr. Kissinger made just a few months ago. And, and at that dinner, we had Yao Ming, we had Tracy McGrady, 
know, an American and, and Chinese basketball players speaking about their their time together and what they learned from each other. So uh, clearly these sports and people to people exchanges are critical. The challenge we face today is not, I think, China's willingness to make visas available for, say, 50,000 U.S. students. It's the willingness of those 50,000 students to get on a plane and come to China. Mm. And, and the narrative um, and rhetoric is, is so negative on the U.S. side that I think that there's, there's, a, there's a, a huge aversion to coming to China at this point, both for ideological as even the security reasons that are espoused in Western media. And, and that keeps people off the planes uh, in spite of the willingness on this side. And, and that will ultimately undermine our ability as Americans to have yeah. kind of a, a deep bench of, of, of students and researchers and academics that understand China. There have been op-eds written just over the last few days that said, where are all the American uh, China experts? Where have they all gone? Um, and and, and if, if they're gone today, imagine what will be it'll be like in the, in the coming decades as we have just a few hundred American students here in China. So a, a long way to go to convince Americans to come here. Mm. You talk about an important issue, which is the rhetorics and the narratives. I remember the Chinese foreign minister in his speech also touched upon that. He regarded that as uh, uh, echo chambers of fake news and misinformation. Now, to a certain extent, that is really true. Uh, but tell me more, uh, Mr. Harburg, about what exactly have you found about the nature of these narratives, of these uh, rhetorics? So uh, there, the, the rhetoric exists on both sides, um, and I think that some of it is also due not just to you know narrative negative narratives that have been developed and fostered in the West, and particularly out of, out of the U.S., but also um, a lot of uh, national uh, news organizations don't have a representative sitting here physically in Beijing. Obviously, COVID made that harder, and so a lot are reporting remotely or reporting from third-party sources. Um, but the net result of that is there is a, a certain um, political as well as economic contingent in, in markets like the U.S. Um, that for various reasons, maybe on the economic side, that they're seeing incumbent interests challenged by upstart Chinese technology, um, consumer, um, uh, uh, you know, hardware, software businesses. Uh, as well as obviously on the political side where they see ideological challenges and uh, a rising China uh, taking its seat at the table of multilateral organizations, displacing U.S. interests or power in certain geographies, um, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, elsewhere. Uh, and so there's significant pushback against that and a, and a negative narrative goes a long way to dissuading um, both um, you know, individuals as well as governments and co mm -hmm. corporations from doing business in China. And I, I've, I've spoken with many business leaders that have remarked about how effective that disinformation campaign has been. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so it's critical that we open those doors, China open those doors. Mm -hmm. And Professor Da, I'm sure you are also uh, thinking about uh, similar issues at this point, but what might be the solutions? Uh, I think, you know, first of all, I have to say, um, yes, uh, you know, those, those rhetoric are important, but rhetoric, uh, you know, they do have, uh, they, they are related to, to the facts or related to the policy, I want to say. It's not, uh, you know, we just have some fake news or we just have rhetoric uh, totally groundless. I think we have to be honest that our two countries are, um, our two countries have a lot of differences, no matter our policies or our institutions. Uh, you know, admitting that, uh, I think it's important for the two countries to talk to each other and to let the people to travel safely 
and uh, you know in a dignified way i think that's a, a responsible way to handle the differences mm-hmm. and by doing that we can at least uh, minimize we can reduce some of the differences some of the you know those those uh, rhetorics i think that's what we can do we we do have difference but uh, if because of that we 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 need those communication more we need those reporters journalists we need tourists we know, we need scholars students to travel to each other i think this is extremely important but the question is whether those differences will lead us china and the us to confrontations um that is a question urgently need to be asked. We have to admit that our two countries are, have a lot of differences, no matter in policy and uh, and our institutions and even values. We have differences, but does that difference mean we need to have confrontation? We have to have confrontation or even conflict, or does that influence uh, necessarily leads to? the reality that we only have hundreds of american students study in china uh, i think no i think that's too much i think we have differences uh, we you can say we are competitor competitor you can say we are adversary but even even if that's true probably that's not true but even if that's true i do think we still need to uh, first communicate to each other talk to each other secondly manage the differences to prevent the, the 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 worst scenario, I think after the San Francisco summit, we have a chance to build a new normal. That is, you know, to manage this uh, tension between the two countries and try to control the differences of the two countries. I think we have the difficulty. Uh, we have the opportunity this year uh, before mm-hmm. the election. But of course, election is a. Uh, the U.S. election is a big uncertainty. Ben, do you agree with what Wei just said? I think we have to be uh, realists and acknowledge that this relationship in many ways is irreparably broken. It, it cannot go back to kind of the halcyon days, maybe 2008. I think the best we can hope for today is some kind of a managed competition. Um, uh, a, 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 a place that has, as I said, guardrails, um, and is a clear uh, combative arena when it comes to business, when it comes to um, influence, uh, politically, soft power, whatever it may be, um, and, and one that, um, but, but one that has what we maybe call organized or predictable decoupling. Because I, I see only a continuation and acceleration of this decoupling and uh, deglobalization that we enjoyed for, for many decades. Mm. Um, and instead a world where uh, there will be balkanization, there will be lines drawn, there will be spheres of political and economic influence. I think uh, hopefully today we can find ourselves in a more predictable environment that at least business and political leaders can point to and investors and consumers can understand um, to enable us to feel that that is a more streamlined and managed process. But but overall, I think it's going to be challenging to do much more than collaborate on the key kind of issues facing humanity, be it uh, climate change, some disease management, mm-hmm. um, global you know political instability. Those might find some um, some shared um, shared purpose, but otherwise it will be a continued divergence. How do we see? The nature of doing business now, especially when the two economies 
are at different stages. All parties sharing blame. I think certainly on the Chinese side, there's been a high degree of unpredictability around the regulation of technology, particularly, um, but also its interventions into what we're seen as kind of independent and um, and relatively thriving uh, sectors. Um, we've had external forces or, or kind of un unpredictable forces, the likes of in, uh, the real estate sector collapse, really challenging a lot of the fundamentals in China. Um, we've we've married that with overall, a, 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 you know, a Chinese growth evolution, which is highly compressed by global standards. And so when global investors have experienced kind of unbridled Chinese growth going from, you know, the late 1990s, where we were at 16% um, to today, where we're probably closer to 5% year on year GDP growth, um, that really shocks investors. All of that has combined for a very complicated picture today um, in China. Um, and in some ways of its own making, but in some ways unavoidable, just given the accelerated growth that we've seen across these markets. Um, and so we enter 2024 with cautious optimism that we can get off of some of the lows that we're facing here on many of the kind of marquee names that have um, been seen as litmus tests for all of the Chinese economy, the likes of Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, um, but will require continued Chinese uh, regulatory support, mm -hmm. uh, stimulus, um, lack of intervention in the market, predictability and more kind of forecasting and foreshadowing around what they're doing. And then that managed competition with the West, where they sit at the table to ensure that there are more predictable interventions from the U.S. side uh, rather than these rapid executive orders, which um, put struck fear into the hearts of many of, of China's largest technology companies, and of course, their investors. So I think uh, the most important thing is, um, you know, that domestic economic development in respective two countries. I mean, uh, for example, if China's domestic economy grow very rapidly in the future, and if its uh, market become more attractive to the Western American business uh, the community, I think then maybe probably in the future, the, the situation may change. But if the, if the market here is less attractive, uh, I, I think, you know, the American companies, American business community may feel this organized, to use Ben's word, organized decoupling is in their best interest. But if this market is, you know, we say the internal, the due circulation, right? If you have those due circulation very healthy, then um, the American company may find that uh, you know, uh, decoupling with China is not in their interest. So until then, probably we may see some different situation. But uh, along current trajectory, I will say, yes, we are towarding this managed uh, decoupling uh, or selective decoupling. Um, but again, I, I have to emphasize is we need to maintain the uh, the necessary and the minimal contact with each other. And for example, we need to make trade as normal. What do you make of, uh, you know, whether there is uh, much, uh, uh, you know, transparency and also information regarding the real state of uh, business uh, between the two countries? I think we have pretty good data, uh, particularly obviously related to trade flows, capital mm -hmm. coming in and out. Um, so when you have edicts, um, even as recently as the gaming edict, and then going back in time, the likes of um, interventions into Alibaba, 
um, uh, actions taken against the education technology sector, um, you know, the delisting or the forced delisting of DD. Um, the, these types of actions against hallmark, you know, brand name blue chip companies, again, that are seen as um, bellwethers for the Chinese economy are looked at very closely by global investors. And um, I, I've, I've certainly made my case to the Chinese regulators that they should do a better job of, of making global investors understand the rationale for decisions taken um, and given as much advanced warning as possible. Um, and again, I think these are growing pains. Going back to my compression of the growth story of China, um, all the financial regulatory infrastructure wasn't in place to uh, regulate these businesses, let alone communicate why the regulation had taken place. And so. I think this is a natural growing pain of a economy that went from zero to 100 in just a few years and is falling back down to the to more modest, mature market levels of growth. Um, um, and, and then, of course, on the U.S. side, to spend time to really understand the market and not make snap judgments, not write um, news pieces that generalize rather than really spend time thinking intimately about the conditions here. Um, and, and so it's, a, it's certainly two have to play the, the game. But, but I think China can start by doing a better job on the PR and the communication level. So how do you both see uh, the international issues would be able to rally at least the supporter of China-U.S. relations getting better, be able to bring them still together. How much strength is really there, Professor Da? Uh, I think we are facing a kind of struggling, you know, of two things. One thing is deteriorating bilateral relations. The other is the demand of the uh, cooperation collaboration on global global issues. And of course, including other issues like uh, uh, for example, people-to-people -people tie, we already mentioned that. I mean, this is a struggle because, I mean, I, probably everybody will say, yes, the two countries should collaborate on those global issues and on those, uh, you know, people-to-people -people ties. But the the bilateral relations, deteriorating bilateral relations, I think has, has had a very bad, a very strong impact on those impact. Uh, I think if we can step into a kind of new normal that I mentioned, I think the two countries can become more mature. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a mature bilateral relations, I think includes that, the, that both sides admit that we are different, but we still need to, you know, live in this, coexist in this world responsibly. Uh, working on those global issues jointly and also maintain the, those, uh, you know, less competitive side of the bilateral relations like people-to-people -people tie stronger. I think those are the part of the content mm -hmm. um, in my new normal argument uh, mm -hmm. is. There are, there are many issues, as I outlined, that we can collaborate on that should be relatively uncontroversial. Um, uh, so, um, you know, we had these expectations kind of pre-COVID that, for instance, a global pandemic was something that the two kinds sides could collaborate on. Uh, we kind of lost, the, we lost that one as a potential area for collaboration. Um, it was long held across the medical sciences that um, that China-U.S. collaboration was critical and controversial and that, for instance, cures for cancer could never be um, truly developed without bilateral co collaboration of clinical trials, of data sets, of scientists flowing cross-border. Climate is a very clear area of collaboration. The West, particularly the U.S., but the West more broadly, Europe cannot meet its uh, climate um, 
targets without a Chinese technology. And China is the global leader when it comes to most of the core inputs, be it solar panels or otherwise. Um, and so there's still very a clear role for the two sides to play there. Uh, we saw that playing out at COP28 in Dubai last, last month or so. Um, so I think that still remains open. I do think there remain areas of collaboration. We need to define the guardrails. We need to define the areas where we are going to compete ferociously when it comes to technology, uh, business, political interests, and then those that are sacred uh, for all of humanity and therefore require cross-border collaboration. Mm. One could argue that we might have some roller coaster situations throughout the year, but how to avoid there's not going to be a decoupling and uh, also run out of tracks would be the ultimate goals that both sides uh, need to work on. Final words from both of you, Ben. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic heading into 2024, but hopefully it provides clarity where the American public stands in its views on China. And that's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, you can always search World Inside on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on X and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now.